HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea. For more information, visit itoen.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Conspicuous consumption and lavish dinner parties of excess marked the Gilded Age. But what did the ordinary people eat? We'll find out today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And the, um, we know a lot about the America's Gilded Age, um, primarily through novels and stories and paintings and, and accounts of all their lavish dinner parties. It was an age of conspicuous consumption, for sure. But what did the ordinary people eat? We know about the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and all the robber barons and industry tycoons. It was a culture then of such consumption. And, of course, same thing happened that we know about from the era of, of royal courts and, and the Renaissance ages. We know what was eaten in the courts. We know what was eaten at the lavish banquets. Food of ordinary people is an area that has been understudied, underlooked, well, primarily because there weren't a lot of, of uh, documentation. There isn't a lot of documentation on that period, except for a lot of nutritional anthropology. Not a lot, but some nutritional anthropology from the periods. But Robert Dirks, the author of Food in the Gilded Age, he has done quite an extensive study into the Gilded, into the Gilded Age. And he poses the question about what ordinary people ate and discovers some surprising answers by peering through the lens of what was then a newly emerging science of nutrition. Robert Dirks, a member of Chicago Foodways Roundtable, grew up in suburban Milwaukee. 
and he earned a Ph.D. in anthropology at Case Western University, and he joined the faculty at Illinois State University. He retired from there a few years ago and gladly has been spending his time writing about much of this um, study that he has been doing. He's conducted research on various aspects of food and nutrition worldwide, and his publications have appeared in a lot of uh, scholarly journals on anthropology and nutrition. And his previous book, Come and Get It, McDonaldization and the Disappearance of Local Food from a Central Illinois Community, traced a changing American food culture from frontier days to the beginning of the 21st century. And now he has put that same uh, small and focused lens to work in his most recent book called Food in the Gilded Age, What Ordinary Americans Ate. Welcome, Robert. Well, thank you, Linda. Uh, Very nice to be with you this morning. It says that you have really um, changed what we know about the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, about science and nutrition, and also about the the ordinary people. Certainly, we have a lot of books that document it. Jacob Reese, of course, doing a lot of his tenement photographic series and, and um, you know, books that were written talking mostly about the other side, the the, you know, the lavish side, but very little written about the habits, um, particularly eating habits, of of that era. Can you describe for our listeners exactly when you say the Gilded Age, what period were you talking about? How many decades were you looking at? Okay, that's a very good place to start. The, uh, the Gilded Age, um, in historians' understanding, usually begins some years after the Civil War, let's say uh, around 1870, uh, through the uh, turn of the century, maybe a few years beyond that. Uh, so uh, let's say 1900, and uh, it's a, a time of uh, immense economic growth in the United States, uh, but um, shall we say the top 1%? <laughs> right. Gee, funny how things haven't changed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and this, you know, this Gilded Age was a time, obviously, you know, of, of strong economic, economic growth. And as I mentioned, you know, the, the robber barons of, of note and the in, you know, industry tycoons, well, the Industrial Re- Revolution was, was coming. So, but there were so many promises that came with it. Um, and, of course, those promises often fell through, especially with the great waves of, of immigration. Um, so when you say ordinary Americans, who were these people? Who were the ordinary Americans that you're talking about? Well, a whole range of them. Uh, my book um, basically surveys the country as we uh, as we knew it nutritionally around uh, 1900 or so, um, and the areas of um, uh, that we uh, know about for that period are the parts of the Northeast and the Southeast and the Mid-Atlantic states, some of the upland or Appalachian South, the Black Belt of Alabama and Mississippi, the Midwest, and, and parts of the West, uh, particularly New Mexico and California. So there, in, within that area, we've um, able to look at, at African Americans, working class uh, 
communities, very impoverished communities, and a whole variety of immigrants. Uh, and it's interesting because so much of, of that population that, again, is has come into our awareness primarily were, you know, around the East Coast tenements and or in some of the, you know, the the impoverished labor, um, you know, camps, farm camp, you know, uh, not, labor camps of, of industries that moved out to the Great Plains. Um, but we don't really know a whole lot about the people otherwise. So this is this is quite an, a wonderful new study for us. But and the details of what they ate, you know, in the past under 100 years is very unusual to see anything uh, whatsoever. So where did your information come from primarily? Well, this is exactly the period when the science of nutrition was born. And um, it was a a period in which uh, scientists, particularly in Germany, uh, began to uh, uh, look at the chemical contents of food and what happened to them uh, when uh, people uh, ate them. Uh, A a chemist in these, these... early nutritionists were chemists. Uh, a chemist in the United States by the name of W.O. Atwater went to Germany. He saw what was happening there, and he carried the interest um, uh, back, and he founded a group of disciples, uh, other chemists who got interested in the mission, and uh, they, uh, under the auspices of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, began to survey parts of uh, the United States the question being, did people of all stripes, occupations and races and ethnic groups, require the same nutrients? And that's how they launched their investigation on ordinary people. Interesting. I mean, prior to that, you say that the the study of nutrition was such a national science. I mean, before that, people weren't even aware of what a calorie was. I mean, they didn't, it wasn't called, it wasn't named, right? I mean... Um, exactly. There was there were no calories or fats or carbohydrates, and and even in the uh, the period that I'm covering, uh, vitamins and minerals uh, remain terra incognito. So yeah. um, we're we're talking about a developing uh, science and some basic questions that took these guys and women out of their labs and into ordinary homes. Now, how was this information collected? I mean, they actually, you say out, out of the labs and into homes. So they actually, they traveled about and, and interviewed these people? They did, often, uh, often getting help from uh, what in those days were called settlement houses or what we'd call welfare agencies today, uh, people on the ground who, uh, uh, who knew, uh, for example, some of the neighborhoods that, that they, uh, they barely knew. And uh, they, the, the typical uh, approach was to visit a household um, daily, perhaps twice a day, and actually count and weigh the foods uh, that the uh, family either brought in from the garden or home from the grocery store. Uh, so it was um, very, very precise. There, was, there wasn't any survey data in, in these, these times. It was... Um, Count and weigh. Yeah, right. Well, so to what extent did that work really reflect the actual practices of the people? I mean, obviously, if they're looking at the food that's in the pantry or on the table, I would imagine that was a pretty good reflection of what they were eating. 
It, it of course, it, it was. Um, it, this um, this window through um, the work of nutritionists gives us um, a little bit uh, different view than we're used to in culinary history because we're looking at what's coming into the kitchen rather than what's being prepared there and going out to the table. Right. So it's a... Uh, uh, it's a different kind of perspective that gives us uh, uh, an understanding of um, similarities and differences between people in different regions, different classes, uh, different um, income groups, and so forth. All right. Um, and I think that the the field and studies of culinary history now have gotten some recognition before it was not even recognized as a a scholarly endeavor, but now has gotten more recognition. Um, but nutritional anthropology was, for many years, for those of us way back when, was one of the only ways we could actually look at study what people were actually eating. Um, so it's interesting now that you, you know, so I, th- I, f- I feel the, the lines have blurred a little bit in, in those two um, faculties, not really a dichotomy between you know the nutritional science and, and culinary history, but yes, I understand what you're saying. That indeed, especially for those days, it was um, something that was groundbreaking. Um, mm-hmm. It was, and when I when I first started, I, I first started doing uh, uh, nutritional anthropology in the 1980s, um, and there was. Um, uh, a good deal of interest in, in anthropology, but uh, people in other disciplines uh, kind of scratched their heads when right. uh, we said we were interested in food. Food, right? Food—that's not—that's you know, not something to study, right? But, well, all right. Okay, so the big sixty-thousand-dollar question. You know what? Um, what did? What were some of the the um, the results? What did you find out about a lot of the? And we're talking. You focus primarily on on those of lesser means, the ones who were really because it was the one percent, and then there was pretty much a large impoverished group of people, right? Exactly. The um, the focus in the um, uh, in the book is is largely on uh, working class people, and um, the uh, both in cities and and in the in the country, the. Um, that was the focus, of course, of um, the uh, United States Department of Agriculture and the government, because uh, these people were the problem. They're coming in from abroad. Um, what are their eating habits? Uh, how, how do we best Americanize them? Um, it wasn't the, uh, uh, the upper class that was the issue. Um, and so there's a, a great deal of data on, uh, on uh, the people in uh, of lesser means. And and it's interesting to contrast them with uh, the upper and middle classes. And we have a little bit of um, contrastive contrastive information there. Mm. What were there? What were they? Were they finding that there were uh, nutritional lack a lack of nutrition that were causing particular diseases um, or deaths with you know throughout these these groups of people? Well. Um, very, very good question. In these days, um, the late uh, 19th century, um, nutrition, these nutrition studies were um, unaccompanied by medical studies. And so there's only 
anecdotal observations mm. regarding the medical condition of the households and the communities uh, being studied. However, um, when you take this information that was collected and carefully analyze it, uh, you get some uh, some pretty interesting uh, contrasts say, between the middle class and uh, uh, unskilled laborers in the lower class. For example, uh, one of the most telling is the variety of foods that um, during any season any particular household might consume. And for the middle and upper classes, for a two-week period, which was the typical period of, of um, investigation in those days, uh, for a household, a two-week period, an upper or middle-class house might consume 40, 50, 60 different foods during that, uh, during that period of time. A working-class, unskilled laborer's household might consume 10 Hmm. Or less uh, on a uh, on a cotton tenant farmer's plantation, a cotton plantation in the south. It might be four or five foods over two weeks. Wow, I would uh, imagine not much variety. Yeah, I would imagine. And um, as you say, those who were had access to a patch of ground. I mean, they could at least plant a garden and have some some fresh vegetables, but. Otherwise, well, uh, un- unfortunately, uh, in, that's only in some seasons. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and when you're um, an African American uh, tenant farmer, um, no, you really didn't have much time to uh, plant a patch of ground and and grow much food. So it was almost all purchased from the com- company store. Company store, right? And so what what's what's the uh, deal here? Uh, four or five foods. Uh, they may be plentiful, but uh, that uh, doesn't cover all the bases nutritionally. Um, the, we don't know exactly what the vitamin or mineral intake may have been, but to have comparatively 50 or 60 types of food over two weeks, you have greater surety that all of the uh, your nutritional needs are being covered. Not so with the uh, uh, the underclasses. All right. I would imagine that the one lacking category would be proteins of any kind. Uh, protein was a uh, uh, was a big problem. Um, a typical working um, man of um, say middling uh, stature uh, required um, thirty five hundred calories a day in uh, say eighteen eighty 1880 or eighteen ninety, which seems like a heck of a lot to us today, but remember, there was no central heating, and every place uh, you had to go, you had to go basically on foot, uh, and and uh, there weren't uh, so many uh, machines doing our work. It was mostly with muscle. So it required uh, a good deal of, um, of calories, uh, and it was uh, stressful work, which would... Um, tear down muscle and um, require constant rebuilding of, um, of both muscle and bone. And so um, protein uh, was required as well, often in, in short supply uh, because um, the, um, of the um, poverty. Right. So what was making up in, in well, let's say, we have to pick a group because I'm sure the 
the diets were very different depending on one group to another. What? But pick a group and, and tell us what made up the bulk of their diet. Okay, that's a uh, uh, that's a good question. I uh, the, the book starts off with um, the uh, uh, with New Mexico. Uh, and the uh, uh, native uh, uh, Mexican Americans. This is before New Mexico became a state, which mm-hmm. I, I think happened around 1910 or so. I'm, I'm not exactly certain, mm-hmm. but um, the uh, the diet uh, for uh, um, the uh, typical uh, Mexican American ranch hand uh, near Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, consisted of um, wheat flour, interestingly, uh, not, not corn, not, not cornmeal in the, at the core of it, um, also uh, beans, lard, sugar, potatoes, and chiles. That's the staples. Those are, those are the foods at least found in 50% of the house, households looked at, or at least something that would be in uh, the majority of the households. Um, about a quarter of the time, cornmeal was found, as well as eggs. Hmm. And um, that was about it. Occasionally some, uh, uh, some uh, rice, some uh, uh, fideos, the uh, uh, pasta, some peas, uh, onions, and maybe some uh, stick candy for the kids, but um, a pretty pretty meager diet uh, for uh, uh, for people uh, in the Southwest. Uh, in town, it might be a little bit more, but uh, out on out on the ranches amongst the uh, the poor, um, not much. Right, uh, you know, I, I'm, I just got this image in my head the only thing that um that i was relating to it that you know that i could think of was a study of the yeoman's diet back in you know in the early um periods in england and similar thing i mean eating gruel they always talk about the gruel they had every day they had gruel is this more or less what we're looking at there was a grain type carbohydrate um derived food that that people were subsisting on very, very heavily, and uh, the um, supplemented um, in uh, certain places. Again, as, as you pointed out, we we don't have a national diet at this point or a national food system. Mm-hmm. It's regional and it's by ethnic mm-hmm. uh, uh, ethnic group and occupational group. But um, it was it was basically a, uh, a grain diet, either corn or wheat. Uh, supplemented by pork fat uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, caloric uh, content. That would be bacon and lard. And, um, uh, again, there were no vegetable oils at this time. Uh, so we're talking uh, mainly table and uh, and cooking fats are, are animal-derived. Mm-hmm. So... Um, an amazing paucity of vegetables, I might add, in virtually all of these except for um, upper-class diets. At this time, vegetables were, uh, you know, uh, weren't available all year. There wasn't a great deal of canning or preservation. Uh, such things were 
a bit expensive when you there were canned foods in stores, but they were quite expensive. And so um, the uh, that end of the uh, of the diet was was largely neglected, except during growing season. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it's you know that is very interesting. And but we're and my question about the the vegetables were even the upper class consuming a lot of vegetables. Were they consuming? Yeah, a lot I mean, of was vegetables? that? It seems to me a lot of a lot. They were okay. So there was a, a they 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 were, and particularly uh, women. One of the uh, opportunities I, I got it as an anthropologist, I'm an inveterate, inveterate uh, compare and contrast guy. <laughs> I, I, I like to look at uh, uh, look at different groups and and different uh, classes of people and see how they're alike and how they're different. And uh, conveniently, during this period, in universities and colleges, which were strictly upper class at, mm-hmm. at, at this period of time, uh, men and women ate separately in different dining halls. Well, what a, what a great opportunity to compare and contrast. And um, uh, we find uh, during, during the period that women are a, uh, the major consumer of vegetables. I have here, uh, uh, I'm looking at a page here in my book now of data from uh, Western Reserve University. Two-week period, men's dormitory, 14 vegetables consumed. Women's dormitory, 47 vegetables mm. consumed. And that's not counting grains and dried legumes. So. Hmm. Uh, a remarkable difference yeah, in uh, in uh, vegetable consumption. You look at uh, a working class household in um, Pittsburgh, not too far from Cleveland. Um, three vegetables uh, over the course of two weeks. Hmm. So, you know, between men and women, uh, between classes some very, very interesting contrasts. All right. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of those classes and some of the people you didn't look at when we come back after a short break. Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea, offers an array of award-winning ready-to-drink teas, premium tea leaves, tea bags, and antioxidant matcha powder. From the refreshing taste of tea's tea, brewed with only the purest of teas, to matcha love taking a modern take on an ancient ritual, Itoen celebrates the authentic tastes of Japan with their 50-plus years of tea-making expertise. For a natural energy boost, try Sencha Shot, packed with healthy catechins and vitamin C. Do visit the Matcha Love Store in the Mitsua Marketplace located in Edgewater, New Jersey for their signature matcha ice cream and shakes. Hoji and black sesame are also a must. With a selection of delicious teas, teaware, and gift sets, Matcha Love by Itoen is not to be missed. For more information, visit itoen.com. Hi, I'm talking with Robert Dirks, um, Professor Emeritus from Illinois State University, an anthropologist. And he has taken the late 19th century's early science of nutrition um, 
and studied the data from um, the actually turn of the century, early 19th century through the end, and uh, given us a wonderful new book and study on what ordinary people ate during the Gilded Age. It's called Food of the Gilded Age, What Ordinary Americans Ate. And Robert, when you decided certain groups to look at to study what they ate, there's some that, that are conspicuously missing. Um, and I want to know why you chose not to, such as urban factory workers or Midwestern farmers. Why did you not include them? Well, the um, they're not included, uh, quite frankly, because um, the uh, early nutritionists who were conducting the uh, uh, the studies from which I drew my data did not include them. <laughs> Good reason. And, and uh, the, so. We basically have no uh, nothing comparable uh, for many, many groups in the United States. But we count ourselves very, very lucky to, um, to have what we have. For example, for African Americans, um, we have uh, uh, several communities that give us an entire range from um, the Deep South, Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, home of the Tuskegee Institute and uh, right in the middle of the Cotton Belt, on up through the uh, Tidewater, Virginia, uh, three communities of African Americans in that area, through Washington, D.C., into Philadelphia, finally on to um, uh, Cheney, uh, Pennsylvania, and, uh, and New York City. So a, a wonderful um, I guess you would call it rural-urban continuum. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we have uh, something quite similar uh, for um, uh, Appalachia and, uh, and Chicago in terms of uh, classes from unskilled to uh, professionals. So we have these things, and, uh, and uh, we're very, very lucky to. And, and this, is a, this is a real game-changer in studying uh, uh, when, when, uh, when nutrition science gets into the business. So we have a, we have a whole different outlook on history. All right. What were um, some of the um, conclusions that you drew from some of the groups of people, uh, the, let's say the, the poverty line group of people, um, Manual labors. What? What? Any? Any interesting or specific conclusions that you drew from your studies? Well, one of the very striking things that I wasn't prepared for, uh, and uh, uh, I, I'm not sure anyone is or was, because um, the the understanding is that while uh, while people during uh, certain times of the year, such as the winter, might have to tighten their belt uh, a little bit. Uh, I, I wasn't prepared for the extent of that belt tightening and how the poor um, were lacking and deficient in their diet uh, during the, uh, this, is, this is the urban poor of the north during, during winter time. Mm -hmm. Um, if you if you chart intake of any of the macronutrients we're looking at, it's a roller coaster. Uh, with the bottom of the roller coaster, um, late winter and early spring, 
uh, going up to the uh, top during uh, late summer and uh, uh, early fall during during the harvest season. And for the south, um, uh, a little bit different. They're they're too amongst the poor people. Uh, uh, a roller coaster in terms of um, uh, of protein intake, uh, with the uh, the low point in spring and early summer, and a high point in fall and early winter. Mm-hmm. And th- this had uh, in in throughout the United States uh, a, a profound effect because. I hearken back uh, to reading some economic history uh, uh, oh, a decade or so back, and um, there was a remarkable difference in stature uh, in the uh, late 19th century between people or amongst people of different classes, such that uh, those who were of the ownership or managerial classes uh, might be two inches taller than those who were from uh, uh, the manual working class. Well, not hard to figure out how that happened right. when, <laughs> when, when you have these literal hunger periods um, once a year affecting children. And uh, the, um, this, this affected their growth uh, because uh, with uh, insufficient uh, uh, calories during midwinter, uh, whatever protein uh, you would have available for uh, tissue growth would be shunted over to uh, simply heat the body or uh, fuel, fuel the body. And uh, so you get uh, a growth arrest, which, uh, which is never made up. Mm-hmm. So I was able to connect some dots here and, and, and see how, uh, how this occurred. It wasn't, it wasn't through some perpetual uh, hunger state, but it was, it was due to um, seasonal fluctuations, yeah, which, which the wealthy managed to bridge uh, by simply um, uh, eating more meat, yeah. <laughs> more, more fatty bacons and such like that, and, and making up the calories. And of course, around this time, well, in the late 19th century, just about the time when um, uh, grocery stores were coming into being. I mean, so there, you know, accessibility to food was difficult for many people too. I would imagine. Well, you should say, particularly those periods of time. Uh, I think. Uh, I think during this period of time, for example, if we talk about um, uh, the. Um, uh, tenement areas of New York that were uh, studied by uh, by uh, uh, nutritionists. I'm talking about New York City. The um, most of the grocery shopping was done day by day. In fact, even meal by meal uh, at uh, small shops um, on the block. Uh, so I, I think we. The, the interesting thing about this. This business of, of, of history, and even at a range of 100, 125 years, is the, the cultural difference uh, that you you encounter. Um, you didn't have house uh, homes stocked with food, um, particularly amongst the poor who had no no way to refrigerate it or store it. Right. Um, it, it was it was uh, a sort of uh, store to mouth. <laughs> 
Right, right. The food chain, as as the, uh, yes. they say, talk about when it comes to refrigeration. Right, it has exactly. It was, it was important. And the um, uh, for for uh, people in the in the deep south, um, it was it was a long chain. I I was prepared to see their their consumption of pork uh, being uh, local, but and I'm sitting here in Chicago, not not too terribly far from what what was the site of the great stockyards. Uh, Chicago was feeding um, uh, the blacks in Alabama uh, uh, with its um, cured pork products. Hmm. Interesting. It's it is indeed an interesting study, and um, and I'm glad you put a lot of this together because it's again, as I say, an area of of our history that. No one likes to read about the bad stuff, the poverty, and but it's so important to know what you know how people were getting by, how they were living, mm-hmm. and how we can change things. Of course, we love to read about the the glitter and the gold and the glitz, and and that will go on. That will always be there. But I, today we have we still have our problems with nutrition, with eating proper foods, with eating healthfully, and and. But we have so much more information now, and I thank you for bringing this this nutritional science, the new the new science, as you call it, you know, to light. And it's something for us to to realize how what a short time it was. It was a little over a hundred years, and that's right. And how little we knew, right? Right. Right. Well, I encourage people to who are interested in this topic to take a look. It's food in the Gilded Age: What Ordinary Americans Ate. And Robert Dirks, thank you very much for joining me today and for sharing this information. It has really been an eye-opener. And thank you, Linda, for this opportunity to talk about it. Okay. And thank you for listening to all my listeners out there. It's been a taste of the past. And join me again here on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.